created live on Fireside. This is Laura DeVoe, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, the fireside chat about higher education in the United States. Um, and we are joined today by Dr. David Baki. Hi, David. How are you today? Great. How are you? I am great. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Fireside. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, um, my name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am a 30-year higher education veteran who has dedicated her life to college students, and I believe in the promise of higher education, but I also know it has some deep systemic flaws, and uh, we like to talk about those as well as the promises that are ahead. Um, and I want to uh, introduce you to David. Uh, David is someone I have known for far too long, but uh, we are people who uh, have dedicated our time and our lives to not only higher education, but to young people and to uh, kind of expanding higher education's promise to a variety of populations. David's background, um, and I'll let him introduce himself in more detail, but he is a 20-year Army veteran, and when he retired from the U.S. Army, he went on to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where he got his Ph.D., and he has literally written the book on veterans on campus. Um, and so, David, why don't you tell folks in the audience a little bit more about yourself and uh, why you ended up getting that PhD uh, and why it was that important to you? Well, you know, veterans don't like talking a whole lot about themselves, but let me go ahead anyway. <laughs> Please tell um, me more about me. Okay. Yes. Let's listen about me. Um, I, so I had a standard army entry career, ROTC, Purdue University, on to a 20-year career. I did everything from traveling the world to serving in combat. Um, while I did serve for a year in Iraq, the six months in Kuwait before that were even more interesting. Um, and I would say that the two years that I spent in Korea were equally interesting to those times in Kuwait and Iraq. And um, anyway, so the full spectrum of military experience from the lowest levels to the highest levels. And when I was retiring, I was uh, serving as, well, I had a year where I was in Korea. The three years before that, I was the professor of military science at University of Massachusetts Amherst and really enjoyed my time there. Mm -hmm. So much so that I, um, I started up an elective course that um, talked about Iraq because this was in the 2005 to 2008 timeframe. Nobody knew anything about Iraq. Mm -hmm. It was the blind leading the blind. So I, I really thought that being in that educational environment as an administrator and professor was really neat. And so I said, let me take my skills as a leader and let me apply them to higher education. Well, in New England, you can't get a job in administration commensurate with my skills unless you have a doctorate. And so <laughs> that didn't <Yes>. happen. <laughs> so um, whether or not you can do the job doesn't matter. It, whether what piece of paper do you have? And so, uh, so I started my doctorate and, uh, and I, I was an open book. I was a sponge to learning about everything. And one of the very first things I did was get involved in pretty much to this day, the only professional organization that has a grand um, approach to exploring the veteran experience in college, which is um, NASPA, the Student right. Affairs uh, Professionals Organization, which is where I met you yep. in uh, 2010. Um, and, um, and then from there, just started to, you know, experience growth within the literature within student veterans and um, found myself becoming a, a counter voice to misinformation, disinformation, and poor scholarship such that we could perhaps uh, try to start off on a better foot. Unfortunately, 11 years later, we're still digging ourselves out of bad habits, bad information. Um, so I was too little and too late. Um, but it's, it's turning. The, the battleship is turning, but these mm -hmm. things don't turn on a dime. And so, so that was the reason why I pursued the PhD was because I, I found a passion for the scholarship of um, generating knowledge, generating credible knowledge so that practitioners can uh, better support the success of veterans in higher education. That's great. Uh, I really appreciate all of that detail because I think it provides people with some insight into this idea that 
veterans are actually a part of our campus that people don't think, uh, I think, more intentionally about. Um, I think that they they actually don't even understand the scope as to which uh, these students uh, contribute on campus. And the fact that you were able to kind of dig in so deep uh, early on from a way that you actually said, look, I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy being part of this community. I know there's more we can be doing for the veteran students. Um, so I, I really think that's an amazing uh, kind of connection to why you got into this. Um, you know, you've been working and studying veterans on campus for quite some time. What do you think are the, the real benefits of having veteran students on college campuses? So I'm a big believer that diversity on our campuses is very important. Unfortunately, all too often people look at diversity as skin deep. That's fine. Um, that That's an aspect of diversity, but it's so much more involved than that because for most veterans, you can look at them and not know that they're veterans. Right. You're going to identify them as, you know, some other person by their skin tone or their gender or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that veterans bring a different perspective. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a, there, there may be a little bit of a work ethic. Uh, typically, their veteran, student veterans are going to be a little bit older than uh, most students. And so there's a little bit more of a commitment to excellence, commitment to, um, uh, uh, teamwork and stuff like that. Not that that doesn't happen with other students, but right. you know, by and large, most veterans are going to be like that. So there, there's an aspect of um, just having another different kind of person in the educational realm. And to flip that on its head, many student veterans, well, many, many veterans, if you will, um, do not have the benefit of uh, already having gone to college, of course, because most are enlisted, which means generally they, they didn't have a degree going into the military like I did. Um, and many did not earn a degree while they were in the military. Further, a lot of student veterans, more than half, are first generation. And so there's been a big push for, you know, 40 or 50 years to try to get, you know, the, the cyclical elite to not be the only ones that access higher education. Well, veterans more often than not, are going to be people who are going to break that cycle mm -hmm. and be the first one in their family to get into college. So joining the ranks of the first generation college students. And, um, and that can be, and veterans have, you know, there's some baggage that comes with being a veteran, but some of the things that are inhibitors for a regular first generation student may not be an inhibitor for a veteran. For example, confidence and those kinds of things uh, may be a little bit different, and so so just bringing that that aspect of further diversifying the uh, the campus population. That is a really excellent point, and that idea of um, emotional maturity that a veteran will bring with them uh, is absolutely essential, which I think really uh, heightens their ability to complete their uh their studies because what we oftentimes see especially with men and i don't mean to pick on men but male identifying folk who uh, show up on a college campus aren't really sure what they want to do um and they're they don't really understand uh, you know what is their uh academic pathway what they want to do why they're there um and uh you know the idea of having time uh in the military to all, uh, allow them to build confidence, for them to build leadership skills, for them to build a sense of what matters to them is absolutely time well spent. Uh, and, and as you said, advances their ability to complete on time uh, and uh, contribute when they're on campus. Um, something that I think is important, though, is a lot of people consider uh, the opportunities that the GI Bill brings to the students in terms of finances. Um, are there some Dis, is there some disconnect in terms of what people's understanding of the GI Bill is and what it actually does? It can be, but mostly not. I mean, I think the, the bumper sticker generally applies that the GI Bill is going to pay for college. There are some exceptions, of course. Mm -hmm. The more expensive, the more exclusive the university is, the less likely that the GI Bill benefits will cover that college. But there's also something called the Yellow Ribbon Program that many people don't know about, which is a supplement to the GI Bill that helps either bridge 
or completely cover the gap that the GI Bill doesn't account for. Mm -hmm. There are also other education benefits for both uh, military dependents and for military members. Um, specifically for military members, there are a lot using um, disability um, compensation, if you will, for uh, paying for school, which is actually slightly more generous than the GI Bill. Right. Um, but all, everyone who separates from the military uh, these days is part of the forever GI Bill, which is the updated version of the post 9-11 GI Bill. The, the only real difference is, is that there's no 15 year cap on, on when you can use the benefits. The benefits are good forever now. That's great. Yeah. And that was a problem because there were some people who didn't, who decided later, like they may have come back from active duty and, you know, life gets in the way and they didn't get themselves uh, enrolled and they capped out in terms of time. So that's great that the, uh, that that is no longer the case. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about, and I just want to remind folks, this is uh, Fireside Chat. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, I'm Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I'm here with Dr. David Vaki, uh, who is an expert on student veterans on campus. Um, as is with any Fireside Chat, if you have a question for uh, David, uh, and want to con on, come on up on stage, please request to do so. Love to have you here. We have had some really great conversations the last few shows um, and uh, love to hear from you. Um, David, with that idea of um, contribution on campus and uh, why they uh, veteran students actually do enhance the campus uh, landscape in terms of who's there and what they're doing, um, you did bring up about the fact that it is possible that the work ethic that uh, veterans have is what may set them apart in terms of their graduation rates. Um, and they have a very high graduation rate. And so what I'd like you to do is to explain to us like what your research has found in terms of actually what is the graduation rate of, of, of veterans, how well do they do once they enroll. And uh, besides uh, that sense of uh, deliberate and highly performing uh production value out of them what what do you think is actually driving that that uh high graduation rate all right let me see if i can package all that together <laughs> um it's a it's a great question because this is one of the things that prompted my original passion for this scholarship in the first place was one of the very early articles uh was not extolling the virtues of veterans as you just did it was um just complaining about how veterans don't succeed and they're having trouble adjusting to higher education and all this other doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? I said, I don't know. I just spent 20 years serving in the military. And sure, there's some sad sacks that are in the military. There's sad sacks in every corner yeah. of society. But for the most part, the, the people that I served with on the enlisted side were amazing. And I'm thinking, how are these people, A, struggling with what really isn't a struggle getting into college and B, struggling to succeed in college? Unfortunately, for the first several years that I was, you know, hacking my way through to change the message about veterans in higher education, there was no data. Um, there's a problem just to very briefly encapsulate it for everybody. The, the VA tracks use of education benefits. For whatever reason, it does not track degree completion, which mm -hmm. makes no sense to me, but I don't run the government. And so that's the way it is. And that's Fourth, actually, and I'm going to interrupt you for yeah. a second. That's where colleges and universities, they get dinged on completion. So right. it's, it's one of those things that always makes me crazy is that there are pockets of the government, especially that don't talk to each other. So right. you've got the, the VA is, is, is evaluating on one metric and the department of education is evaluating on another metric and yeah. they don't line up. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. To well, it's a, and it's amazing. You go all the way back to world war two, each uh, iteration of the GI bill was created so that veterans could go out and earn a credential that would help them get a leg up in life. Mm -hmm. AKA earn the credential is the important measurement metric there, not use of the benefits. Right. Um, <laughs> in any case, yeah. um, it, it's, it just, it just speaks to the whole tail wagging the dog bit. So, 
fortunately, a couple of years ago, um, actually since 2014, and then again in 2017, Student Veterans of America did some great studies. They are the only entity that has access to NCES data or, or the IPEDS data and the VA data about student veterans to blend those two databases to get actual graduation data on student veterans, those that are using education benefits. Obviously, if there's a veteran who's going to college and they are not using benefits, they're not tracked by this. Um, So there could be some X factor in there, but those numbers are actually very small. So if you consider, um, there's been some updated data lately. When I started my graduate experience about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, the, the general population graduation rate was about 52% at all educations of higher learning. Um, you, can, you can sift all of that out, but when you, when you get to comparing apples to apples, perhaps the, the generous description of the general population's graduation rate might be 62%. Now, obviously, if this is corporate America, we're out of business, right? right? But it's higher education, so we get to keep going. Now, to put that into context, the conservative measure of veteran success, which is within six years, the six-year graduation rate for the general population is 62%. Veterans is 72%. So that's right. an amazing difference right there. That's a huge difference. Yep. And Well, it gets better because for the general population, when you extend that out, the reason why there's a six-year graduation rate metric is because statistically speaking, no one else graduates after six years. Right. They do. It happens. You know, returning moms come back to school and finish 25 years later. It happens, but statistically it's zero. Mm-hmm. However, when you extend it out for veterans who had various stopouts for deployments or training, or I had to separate from the military, get my family figured out, whatever it is. Adding on those extra two years to create an eight-year metric actually adds five-plus percentage points onto the veterans. Wow. So you're over 77% of veterans are graduating within eight years of starting their program. Right. And so let's conservatively call that 75%. It's, it's way higher. And people are like, well, the veterans are just getting by the, by the skin of their teeth, right? Now the general population graduates with a 3.1 GPA and veterans graduate with a 3.2 GPA. Right. Um, And and amazingly, um, this data is consistent, ironically, all the way back to the earliest data from World War One. Same same data. Veterans do a hair better than (laughs) non-veterans. Well, but that's absolutely stunning to me that that there is this consistency over decades. Mm -hmm. There is no other student population Okay, when we look at subsets of students, because every campus has these like subsets of students, women, men, student athletes, whatever the case may be. Okay, LGBTQ, like, you know, you can't just pull this stuff out in terms of some of these identity groups. And so that actually uh, what I love about your research is that you have when you go back and you look at from world war would you say world war one or world one. war two one world, world right war after world war one yeah so world war one all the way to now okay we have a consistent stream of data on the effectiveness of how veteran students engage on campus complete and all that there that actually sell, could solve some questions we have for the broader audience, for the broader student audience, because uh, one of the things you brought up in terms of where you get data is uh, the National Student Clearinghouse or Mm -hmm. iPads. When people go back, if they listen to this um, on the recording and they say, what's iPads? What's what's National Student Clearinghouse? They own the data like they have the data for every college and university in America uh, that tells you how how well they're doing. Okay. And when you actually can uh, parcel out the data, apply it to the uh, veteran population and go back as far as you can go back, that can, that's real information that should be informing how we support our students across the board to increase graduation rates. Mm-hmm. When you look at what you know, is there something you say, this is a nugget that people overlook and I yes. think it actually is applicable? What is that? Yeah. So the nugget is this. Um, and, and this is where having served in the military and watching uh, some of these, I'll call them young people at this point because now I'm old. Um, <laughs> 
get, get out of the, the military, you know, knowing what they were capable of in the military and then watching them choose to go into college after that, it's an intentional decision. And we've talked about this before, but you know, what is Skippy, the average American, supposed to do after high school? Well, I Skippy, love that you call them Skippy. Skippy, go ahead. Skippy, <laughs> Skippy is supposed to go to college. Yeah. Okay. What if Skippy is not ready to go to college? What happens to Skippy? Skippy becomes one of the forty-plus percent mm-hmm. of the general population that drop out because Skippy was not mature enough to go to college. Mm-hmm. And it's not Skippy's fault. Somebody more mature. Uh, either a parent or a guardian or somebody at an institution who needs to get out of their own way and forget the notion that more is better as far as enrollment. Um, you know, that we, we need more intentional decisions to go to school and we need some intentional decisions not to go to school. Um, and I'm not saying that higher education should go away and people shouldn't go to college and all that kind of stuff, but there's a real problem with too many people going to school. We have tried to improve student success for 50 years mm-hmm. and it's not happening, right? right, right. Um, it, you know, it's only barely happening. And I would argue that the reason why we've kind of jumped from 52% to maybe 62% is because of a lowering of standards, not because of an increase of performance. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and that has to do with, you know, certain you know, private entities that are out there granting degrees and who knows what the credibility of those organizations are. And, you know, that could be the only real difference. So an intentional decision and non-traditional students make this kind of intentional decision all the time. I was going to go to college. I went for a year, but then I had a family and then, you know, I'm in my late thirties and now I'm going to go back to school. What are the odds that that person is going to fail? It's very low. It's a very intentional decision. And Veterans at a much younger age, veterans are typically between 24 and 35 when they go to college. Very intentional decision because they see officers with college degrees. They see that they are relatively intelligent compared with those officers. Oh, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now it's an intentional decision. Whereas Skippy coming out of high school, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. We'll go to college. Go to XYZ State University and have fun. Okay. There's a recipe for success, Right. Right. Um, right. And so I think it's that intentionality of that decision. And we have to be more discerning about who goes to college, when they go to college and, you know, why they're going to college. Well, and I think your point about when Skippy, <laughs> I love this, when Skippy enlists in, in and uh, Skippy is around these leaders within uh, the within their their uh, unit and they are being uh you know, barked at or they're being led by and they're saying, hold on a second, I'm now exposed to all these different leadership uh, profiles. I am around all of these different individuals who uh, I either relate to or I don't. Um, But there is a there is also you you don't like get to step out of line in terms of uh, how you interact with those folks, whether you actually can relate to that, um, that that general or that sergeant or you know, I'm not you, you're going to laugh you're laughing because I don't know all my numbers here in terms no, of No, I'm like, just who, nodding. I'm you know, just <laughs> nodding. <laughs> but you know, whoever your commanding officer is and you look at this person you say okay, I don't have a lot in common with them, but I I am looking at these other officers and I'm learning who who do I have something in common with and how could I rise up to this level? And if that person can do this, I can do this. That is a very different headspace than most 19-year-olds when they're on a campus still trying to figure out what their major is. Right. And, and, and I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I also wonder, um, kind of flipping to the financial piece too, um, is that when you said earlier about the GI Bill, and people can uh, act when they're done, they can engage that GI Bill and they can go and the GI Bill gives them a long runway in terms of when they can use it. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely different from what Joe student Skippy has done as far as their financial, their federal financial aid. You're capped out yes. of when you can use it. You're capped out of how long you have for it. If you take a step out, you have to start paying it back. 
And that is another thing. So I think it, once you look at this idea of those two elements where you've got students who are a little bit more informed about what they want to get out of this educative process, and then you have the fact that students have a bit more freedom about how long they take to use the money and when they use the money, th those are the two things that I think are super important. And we don't apply those to the to the general student population. Yes, but I would complicate it even a little farther because for me, I'm biased, right? I, I, <laughs> I'm biased because I love veterans and I think that there are very few veterans who, if they choose to go to college, should fail. So for me, I'm not surprised at all that 72, 75, 78% of veterans are succeeding. I'm frustrated at why 22% or 25% are failing. I can't explain that. Um, there's no data that explains that, but I can I can postulate why that is, and right. I'll I'll draw the I'll draw the the conclusion to in two ways to how I slightly disagree with what you said. There's a thing out there called Pell Grant, right. which a lot of people know about, and every a couple of years ago, this is dated information. A couple of years ago, it was regular that every year in the ballpark of 19 billion dollars worth of Pell Grant are not used. So there's loads of money out there not being used. So that's not the problem. But what I can tell you is this. If you take Skippy's less fortunate younger cousin from the inner city who suffers all of the obstacles to getting into higher education yep. and, you get, and, you, and you create this thing called an open enrollment institution, mm -hmm. a.k.a. no criteria to get in other than you can pay, mm -hmm. and you give them a big bag of money, whether it be called Pell Grant or the GI Bill, that student is now going to go there. If they are unfit for college, they're going to fail. So for years, we've been talking about, well, we have to overcome this financial obstacle to college. Well, sure, for some people, the people who can do college but can't afford college, that's, mm -hmm. you know, the two are not completely overlapping populations. Right. And so my hypothesis, is, and I make, I make up data all the time when there's no data to actually have, mm -hmm. So I say that half of the veterans who are not succeeding in higher education are only there because they have the money, not because they can actually do college. And somewhere in there, that litmus has got, got to help them be more intentional. Maybe you should go to trade school. Maybe you should go learn to be an electrician. Maybe you shouldn't be going to, you know, umpty big state university and getting overwhelmed by the, you know, so, so, and I think that same thing happens in the rest of society where we're trying so hard for these people who have been for generations, just downtrodden. We're trying to help to lift them up. The, we all know that education is the way to lift them up. Same reason why we want veterans to have access to college, but you throw money on them, you eliminate that obstacle and you put it on somebody who can't do the college work how much worse are you actually making that person's life? Now you've just given them a failure experience. And I'm not so sure that we, we still have some room to improve with what we're doing there, both with veterans and non-veterans, I guess is my point. Well, and I think there's, a, there's, I think for me is that I'm not trying to come up with the absolute solution, but I think there's the questions that get raised from this is that if the, if what we're doing to provide to folks who are Pell eligible or even folks who uh, may not be Pell eligible, but they flunk out uh, and that's a that's money out of their own pocket, mm -hmm. okay? And now they have to pay it back or they have to pay their parents back or they have to pay the bank back or whatever the case may be. We need to start to think about what's working and where is the value of the dollar going where it's actually creating a completion track Mm -hmm. And and decide what can we do to sh to kind of pull from those successful experiences and apply them to these different different subsets of the the student population. Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. And, and and that idea of, you know, uh, of Pell eligible students and there's data out there about completion rates of Pell eligible students and, and first gen students, et cetera. And that we need to be providing them with some some assistance. And mm -hmm. and we know, we know, we know it's so much known. It's crazy known that <laughs> if we give students uh, a bridge opportunity where they are getting ramped up on emotional, 
on study skills, on some of the academics and all that sort of thing. It works, but it's expensive mm -hmm. because you have to you have to pay for it somehow. And you don't want to make them pay for it because they're already going to be in debt. So why are you going to do that? Right. Right. So there there has to be a, a way to create that that gap year experience yeah. that gets people from an into an emotional standpoint. And they may decide at that point, I want to go to trade school. I want to go to community college. I want to go into the military, whatever the case may be. Um, we need to support that. And that's a systemic change in terms of mm -hmm. what we do to high school students and getting skippy in the mindset of what comes next. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, um, I've said this time and time again, uh, that we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need HVAC people, we need all of that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that we are now in a situation in this country where we have so devalued that and said, oh, you need to go to college in order to have value. I, that's baloney. That right. is absolute baloney. Right. Um, and uh, and and so I think if we can learn from the successes of the veteran population um, and really apply it and say, what can we do better to change the game, so to speak, uh, we may be in, in much better state of affairs. Yeah. Um, and there may be there may be a an opportunity there to approximate what goes on with the military somehow. Right. Um, and this is where some of my friends, uh, you know, more stereotyped coming from the military go crazy, but the notions <laughs> of compulsory service, yep. um, not into the military per se, but think about what an EMT could do mm -hmm. for themselves if they didn't have to worry about driving the, you know, the, the emergency vehicle and yep. someone in it who was doing, you know, service to the state for a year or two was a dedicated driver for that vehicle. Now EMTs, instead of driving ambulances are in the back saving lives, yep. um, stuff like that. You know, you've got, uh, you know, Peace Corps, you've got Job Corps, you've got the military, you could do the, any number of loads of things, you know, low cost, high service to the country, maturing opportunities, because let's face it, the idea behind everybody going to high school back in the day was that we'd have a better, mature, more informed citizenry. Well, that's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the maturity of the average 18 year old has only been going down in the last 60 years. And yeah. so, um, which is the fault of society. So we need to have opportunities to mature. So maybe they can get, maybe there's a litmus, you know, the top X percent, 30% or whatever. Yeah. 18, you're good enough. You go off to school. That's fine. The rest of you, you need to do a service to the country kind of thing or what? I don't know. Yeah. Some... Well, this is where, this is where David and I, David and I have known each other long enough that, and he's like, okay, here comes Laura with her liberal claptrap and I'm going to start yeah. moving into some things. I'm not a huge fan of, of mandatory service, right. but one I want to see is paid service. Right, because, right, right. Because we want to be able to expand it to say to somebody, look, you're 18 years old and now let's let's say somebody's Pell eligible. So that means their family does not have the money to say, hey, you know what you could do, Skippy? You could spend a whole year just doing service. We can we can float you on that because we don't need money. That's that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So if we're able to to even it out, provide for uh, the the options for folks to say, you know what, and, and the diversity of options. And when I say options, I mean, I love that idea of, you know, you want to, you want to help out, you can want to drive a, an ambulance for a year. Mm -hmm. Great. That's one type of young person who might be interested in that. Whereas another type of young person might be like, you know, I'd really like to work with the elderly or with, mm -hmm. with young children who need mm -hmm. help. Great. That's a different type of person. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, and then get people, I, I love the climate. I want to do something to help the climate. Great. Yep. Go into the climate course. Oh, yep. so, so go. But if you give folks that opportunity to not only engage, not only find uh, a maturity, not only build a sense of self-worth and put some money in their pocket to be able to, you know, put it towards college or, or help pay bills at home, whatever the case may be. Now you're building in that year to two years where folks are 
in a better headspace so that when they enroll in college, they'll be more likely to, to succeed. So mm -hmm. I, I absolutely love, uh, yeah. I love where we're going with this, David. We're well, and maybe, maybe you can create a, some sort of program because to get full GI Bill benefits, you have to do three years in the military. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you do three years, I, I call it compulsory service because that's what it's called in most countries around the world, but yep. some sort of service to the state for three years, then you can get some GI Bill like kind of thing, you know, yep. the whatever you and call I it. Think, and, and there's actually an upcoming episode of Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. I have some folks who are experts in service learning and um, and in civ civic service. And uh, I believe that Senator Coons is bill uh that he's trying to push through about uh service is actually does highlight that idea in some way david that mm -hmm. is if you do x amount of time uh of service they can actually apply that towards um your education similar to the gi bill yeah um, or it's loan forgiveness or something of that mm -hmm. nature but it's mm -hmm. significant money it's not just a a, a thousand right. bucks here a thousand right. bucks here it's real money that actually is a change maker which i yeah love. yeah so as a reminder, this is Fireside Chat. Uh, we have a nice audience today. Um, if you do have a question for David or for myself, love to have you come on up on stage uh, and ask that question. Uh, I am Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am here right now with David Vaki, Dr. David Vaki, and he is, as you can tell, an expert on veterans on campus um, and uh, the impact that uh, not only uh, higher education has on the veterans, but uh, what kind of impact the veterans have on higher education. So uh, this has been a great conversation. We have, we're about halfway through the show. Um, something you said earlier, David, and I do want to highlight this because I don't always want to talk about the negative, but I am going to talk about this right now, mm -hmm. is that you were talking about when you kind of first got pushed into by yourself, where you're like, no, I got to start looking at this because people are, are throwing out things that I just don't believe are the case for veterans. Uh, when you look at some of the misinformation out there about veterans on campus and what the what is the actual information? Mm -hmm. Are there some areas that are more likely uh, than not to be kind of thrown around? Um, I, I will throw one out is that, uh, you know, I remember when I was a vice president, I had folks say, say to me, well, you know, if we increase, if we become a yellow ribbon campus and we encourage more veterans to come to campus, we don't have the mental health capacity to help these students because <laughs> they all have PTSD. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is, that is something that we had. And, and actually you helped me formulate ways to, to talk to folks about how that was not the case. But, you know, what are, are there other misnomers out there and, and what are they and how do you kind of counter that information? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of them. And we'll, we'll go right to that piece with the disabilities, too. Um, you know, it, it's where, where some of the literature got off track right at the beginning was anecdotal observation of people who come to the Veterans Lounge at mm -hmm. XYZ University. And, um, and that's fine. You know, this is, this is going to sound awfully negative. It's not meant to be negative. There are people who need support, right. Yep. Of all flavors and of all kinds. Right. So who is going to go to the safe space, the veterans lounge, the LGBT center, the women's center? Is it the veteran who's got it all figured out? The woman who's got a 4.0 and is everything's going great you know, the LGBT person who's comfortable with their identity and is out there slaying the dragon, those people are not necessarily frequenting those spaces. They might drop in and say hi. Mm -hmm. The right. people who, who frequent those spaces are the ones who need those spaces because they're, they're not thriving as well as those exemplars, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why we have those spaces. So if you go to one of those spaces and you try to generalize about the entire population based on what you're seeing in that space, you're going to get a myopic view. And what that view said uh, 12, 13 years ago was most of our veterans are struggling with transition. They have uh, disability. Uh, they have uh, PTSD. They have anxiety issues. They can't work with freshmen, all that kind of stuff. And there is certainly a percentage of veterans who have that. I don't want to say that that's not the case. But again, when you get into the data, the national data, instead of 
taking anecdotal observations and you actually piece together, this is a, an older data point from it more at the height of the global war on terror, say in around 2013 or so. At the height of those times, the numbers of veterans with physical disabilities and mental disabilities, in other words, visible and invisible injuries, everything all ball of wax total together. If you took the most liberal measure that you could possibly take, it was 30%. Hmm. So you're more likely to encounter someone who has no issues than someone who has any issues. Mm -hmm. And the people who have so many issues such that they can't perform in higher education are, I, I'll tell you this, in, I've, been, I've been working with veterans on campus one way or another since 2006. Mm -hmm. I've experienced exactly one student veteran who could not perform on campus. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not that I, he's the only one or whatever, but the likelihood that someone who, who can't look into a computer screen because it gives them such a headache due to the TBI is actually going to try to perform in college is zero. That person knows they can't do college. Mm. And so, so this idea that vast numbers of veterans are out there disabled and having all these issues is nuts. But that's the only thing that sells newspapers. It's the only thing that you can make a movie out of. It's the only thing that these some of these original scholars thought they were going to be able to convince someone to create help programs for veterans if we highlight the negative. And, uh, and I can tell you that in the eight years or so since I came up with you know, that data analysis, um, the numbers of, of veterans that were exposed to combat and got physical or, or uh, invisible injuries has only gone down. It's gone down exponentially in relation to the number of troops that have been deployed around the world to places where that kind of stuff can happen. And so, you know, though, so 30%, that was the high watermark. So the number is much lower. I usually use a number around 20% at best. 10 years from now, you're going to be using a number that's under 10% because we're not going to get into major wars in the next 10 years. And so that's the first big piece of, of misinformation. And th those people who are worried about mental health services, you could have all kinds of mental health services in the world. The biggest problem we have right now is convincing veterans who should use mental health services to actually go and use those services because mm -hmm. they're not doing it. That's far more of, of the deal. The other one that I could tell you, there, there's always been a pet peeve of mine. People are like, well, if we bring people in with the GI Bill, we're going to make more money. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to make more money. How is that? Well, we're going to get government money. It's free money. Sure. sure. And where did Skippy, where does Skippy's money come from? Uh, mom and dad. Okay. Or the Pell Grant or a bank loan, or you're still getting money and whoever sits in the slot. So you're not making any more. The other one, it's a real quick one. And this is funny how someone like me could be categorized as a failure in this regard. So there's a really bad piece of research that was done in Colorado about 12 years ago. And it said, veterans are failing, only 2% are graduating. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't have to be a super scientist to know that's not true. That can't be right. yes. Let's peel back the banana on this one. Well, the real data point there was only 2% of student veterans use the full amount of their GI Bill benefits. Wow. That's, I didn't use all mine. I got my PhD. What am I going to do? Right, 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 <laughs> so right. I got some left. I can't use it. <laughs> well, and that, so... That's amazing. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of some of the other things that, you know, you always heard about, like, you know, we're of a certain, we're, we're peers in terms of our age. So I remember back in the 80s when they would talk about the military spending, you know, $7 zillion on a, on a, a, a laser beam. You know, on a laser, yeah. right. Well, or like for or even worse for like, you know, a screwdriver. You know? Oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. That. And that's, yeah. You know, so when you bring that up, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm, please tell me we've cleaned up this money thing. Um, you know, but, but those are the things that literally when you are talking about any student population, any student group, um, we, we, create these monoliths, right? So we create like, well, every kid who is identifies as this has this issue. Like, no, um, every student is different. And there are certain common denominators in terms of the types of struggles students have, but it really depends on their individual, um, not only their identity, but their support network, uh, who they have cheering them on, 
what kind of access to, to resources that they may have. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I remember I had a student who uh, took some time off uh, from when I was working at Mount Ida College and he was active duty. He got called up. He had a, he ended up going down to uh, Guantanamo Bay for I think it was two years mm. um, to be down there. And then he ended up coming back. He ended up graduating. I mean, like everything you were talking about where other students, I would say, would not have had the kind of uh, self-determination to finish. Mm -hmm. But he said, nope, I'm going to come back. I'm going to finish. And before he left, he even said, okay, before I leave, because I don't know when I'm coming back, I want to have this updated uh, list of my courses that I have to take. I want to know where I'm in. It, because you know as well as I do is that course progression changes over mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, I want to know what I need right now to finish so that when I come back and just in case those things are not offered, I wanted, I don't want to have to do all the research when I come back. Yeah. I want to have it with me. So like, even when he left, he had it in his head that he was coming back. He wanted to know what he had to finish and uh, went from there. Um, and uh, and that sort of thing. The one thing I tried to push my campus to do, and we never got around to it, um, was being able to provide student veterans with uh, course uh, replacement. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, when they're in active duty, they may take certain classes or certain trainings from the from their the uh from the military um that depending on their major could actually apply um do you see that as, as something that schools are doing more of now or is that a kind of a a, a a sticky wicket in terms of how it's perceived in the academy yeah i i think that the schools that want to do that are doing that and i think that the, the difficulty with veterans as a topic right now is it's yesterday's news unfortunately right um we're we're no longer on an increasing trajectory of student enrollments for veterans um it's plateaued if not slightly decreasing um and, and that's because of the nature of the the way the military is uh mm -hmm. you know many many years ago 15 years ago people were enlisting for education benefits I, I don't know how true that is now. It's still true to some extent, but it's not the same. And so, um, and now, of course, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, we were talking about like <laughs> replacement of, of training. For right, exactly. Courses. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the, the quintessential example that everybody likes to point to is, well, we had a combat medic who was, you know, saving people's lives in the middle of Afghanistan. And uh, why does that person have to have basic temperature reading and how to, how to draw blood from somebody in a nursing program? Because nursing programs are accountable to what's called the NCLEX exam at the end. It's like the lawyer's board exam for yep. becoming a nurse. You can get all the nursing degrees in the world. If you don't pass the NCLEX exam, you're not going to practice nursing. Right. And so the only way to make sure that our students can pass the NCLEX exam is to make sure they go through all of our training. And uh, now that may or may not be the right answer, but that's the prevailing wisdom as far as the, the nursing uh, question mm -hmm. in combat medics. Um, now, what you do find is that some veterans, um, you know, will get a couple of credits here and there, you know, up to nine elective credits. But here's the problem. There's so little flexibility right. in most degree completion programs nowadays that if you if you say, OK, well, you don't have to take nine elective credit hours that just eliminated all the flexibility in your degree program in 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 a problem where now there's no flexibility you've given me almost a semester of of credits i took a little bit of actual college work when i was on active duty so i really only need three years to finish but because i'm coming in as a quasi freshman or first year, we got to be updated with our language or quasi first year <laughs> that I can't get access to the more advanced courses I need because second years, third years, fourth years are all taking all the slots for those courses. And so now I've got to spin my wheel. Well, you know what happens when a veteran, a student veteran on GI Bill has to spin their wheels and take courses that don't count towards their degree. The GI Bill doesn't pay for that. And so you, you, you start to create a problem. And I'm not saying that everybody should be giving all kinds of credits for veterans. Um, it's a dual-edged sword. And uh, to further complicate it, for several years when I was um, on staff at UMass, I, I had the great opportunity to serve in the faculty senate. And um, this question about 
how many credits equals a UMass degree. Um, there are some universities out there that will take six semesters of credits. And as long as you take two semesters on their campus, they'll give you a degree from their campus. UMass was 51% of your credit hours need to come from UMass, you know, courses. Right. And because that's how they're awarding the degree. And so I understand the institutional perspective. And then the veteran, it's like, what are you hurrying up for? Yeah, okay, you're going to get paid better in theory when you're out mm -hmm. of college. But mm -hmm. Take the opportunity. I can tell you that there are still, let's see, when did I get out of combat? 2004, so 17 years ago. So there are still moments where I am transitioning, if you will, back to normal. You never get back to full normal from where you were before war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are still moments when I'm transitioning. The majority of that time, you know, the transition was over within three years. So take your time. Don't be in a hurry to rush through school. Yeah, I know the big engineering job or whatever is waiting for you on the other. It'll be there when when you graduate. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, take those courses and then the way to work in those credits. This is the way that the GI Bill works. If, if your full course load or if a full time student is 12 credit hours, if you want to take goofball 101, you just take that as the extra fifth course over and above the four required courses that go towards your degree program. And you can take underwater basket weaving as an extra course. And the GI Bill still pays because it's full time from 12 to 21 credit hours. So, yeah. So that, that's a long winded answer to that. But yeah. But but when your answer to that question, though, also leans me to I want to make sure that before we we finish today, we talk about your last book where you're talking about how to transition students uh, into uh, college from active duty to being a veteran mm -hmm. student. And um, so uh, David wrote a book uh, a that I'm going to, I'm going to forget. I don't have the straight title, talk right? for veterans, straight talk, straight for, talk veterans. for veterans. There you go. There you go. Uh, and so he wrote a book, straight talk for veterans. And it specifically talks about uh, how student veterans could uh, ease the transition. Um, and one of the things you just talked about that made me think about, uh, you know, a area to support student veterans that uh, institutions may want to think about. Um, and if you are a veteran and you're listening to this and you're saying, I, all right, now I've got a better perspective on what it is to uh, transition to college or what are going to be some of the things that I'm dealing with. Um, sh there are not every campus has a veterans affairs office, correct? Mm -hmm. No, they, they have a certifying official is the only requirement. So that's to certify the benefits. So it's to make sure the benefits get there, but there isn't always someone to talk to about you know, how to be successful on right. campus. And, That's right. And, and to go to your point um, about, you know, the veteran lounge and all that kind of thing, it goes beyond that. Because if you have mm -hmm. a veteran and, and your point about the, the nursing program is actually what kind of jogged this in my head. So you have a, a, a veteran has come out of active duty. They were doing uh, the medic uh, kind of uh, re responsibilities within their uh, in, within their group. They now have all this training on how to be a medic in the army or or in the the, the navy or whatever. Um, and then now they're being told they have to do something. They're like, I could do this in my damn sleep. Why do I have <laughs> to take this class? And having someone who is on the campus who could say, okay, David, I know you were active duty. Uh, you were a medic. You are a nursing student. Let's talk about the things you might get frustrated about. Mm -hmm. Yes, Let's talk exactly. about the, let me explain why. And, you know, this actually is an opportunity for you to pivot your leadership skills and your maturity so that within the class, you know, and people kind of, you know, you get really into the, the textbook of the work um, and people forget about the people of the work, you know, mm -hmm. and you have a ability to bridge that with your classmates and, uh, you know, a good advisor or someone who is good in that kind of role as a veteran affairs person could have those conversations and head off some of the frustration and, yeah. and at least put it in the head of the student. Okay. 
David, I'm going to tell you, I have advised 25 uh, nursing majors in the last two years. And I will tell you, these are the three things that that make them crazy as far as their experience as being a veteran student. So I just want you to know this is something to, to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so important. And, and we we oftentimes forget that it doesn't matter what uh, category a student might be in, having the proper resources available only heightens their ability to succeed. Right. Um, and so we, we oftentimes forget in the veterans uh, departments is to have effective veteran services offices. When you have other offices out there, you have offices for folks uh, regardless of their identity and uh, people who have learning differences. We have a writing center on campus. We have all these things, which we should continue to do, but you oftentimes need, especially with the veterans and other adult learners, I will Mm -hmm. say this, is that Mm -hmm. especially you, you talked about the moms who come back after your kids are growing up and now I'm going to finish that degree. Mm-hmm. They need someone to kind of walk them through it and say, okay, this is where you're going to find this. This is what's going on. I know mm-hmm. this makes no sense this, right. <laughs> because right. that's a lot of higher education makes no sense. Um, and especially if you're coming in from an outside view and you say, well, why is this happening here? And I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, let me undermine the marketability of straight talk for veterans uh, very briefly, <laughs> because um, I, I, I continue to believe, as I have ever since the beginning of my thinking about student veterans, that whether it be smooth or whether it be bumpy, almost all veterans can successfully transition to higher education. Um, now, the question, and, and not at a similar percentage, but I think most students could also join college and successfully get there. How bumpy that is could be different, but why do we have freshman orientation programs and first year learning programs and all that kind of stuff, right? So the idea is to make it smoother because then you enhance that retention into the second year. You make it through the first two years and usually you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so what what the book allows a campus to do or an individual student veteran for that matter is to Think about many things like you just highlighted. Here are some frustrations that you may experience. Don't let it get the best of you. Here are some dynamics that you're going to experience in the classroom. Students not paying attention. Students being disrespectful of the professor. All that kind of stuff that would drive you crazy in your military training environment. All that kind of stuff. What a campus can do is they can use this as a textbook for a seminar, a uh, first year student veteran experience or a, or a, a, a first year, uh, you know, freshman, what do they call it? First year course. Yep. Um, first year seminar. Yeah. First year seminar. Um, and, you know, to, to create a, and I, and I have the curriculum for that. I can design the curriculum for somebody. I did it at um, two or three different universities um, that I've worked with and at. Yep. And, uh, and it's not a very hard kind of thing. The biggest thing is to make sure that it can be accommodated within the GI Bill program. And if it's a first year seminar, those are required courses and you're all set. Mm-hmm. If, you, mm-hmm. if you don't have a program like that, then you sort of have to add it in as that 13th credit hour or however many credit hours it is. But, um, but these kinds of things are, are opportunities. And, um, uh, and, and I think that making that transition smoother is only going to help um, student veterans move on and get to where society has decided they want them to be faster, which is earning that degree and moving on. That's the point of the GI Bill program. Let's get them this credential that helps them get a leg up after they leave the military. Great. Well, I have to say, this has been a great hour. I really appreciate your time. Um, and if people want to follow you on any social media or any way to get in touch with you, what would be your preference? Oh, my goodness. You can find me on LinkedIn, I think, the easiest. Yep. There aren't too many Vakis on LinkedIn. It's V-A-C-C-H-I. You can find me on Twitter. And I'm not even sure what my Twitter handle is. I think it's David. Why don't we go David, with LinkedIn then? Yeah, I think Twitter is David Vaki Vets. Yeah. Um, but you can find me on LinkedIn. That there's there's a, a real a lot of people are connected with me on there, and I love connecting with people because I think LinkedIn is being used almost exactly for what it's supposed to be used for: professional networking opportunities. Yep. And there's a lot of there's a lot of good information being shared about veterans and student veterans on LinkedIn right now. So it's a very constructive place to be. So I welcome 
um, anyone that wants to connect over that. And then um, you can always, from there, you know, if there's a reason for us to connect further, we can connect further from uh, LinkedIn. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for being here. Um, And I want to remind folks that uh, the show uh, airs every week on Thursdays. Uh, Next week, we do have a programming shift. We will start at four o'clock rather than three thirty. And it will be at uh, four o'clock. And the topic is it's Pride Month. It's June. So it is our LGBTQ show. Um, And we have a great panel of folks coming on to talk about uh, LGBTQ students on campus and uh, what is happening right now and what are some of the current issues. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And uh, so again, my name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And uh, I hope to see you back here in the office hours in the future, right here only on Fireside Chat. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.